0: Well, on Good Friday, as we know, Christians from all over the world celebrate, commemorate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And for our meditation on the sufferings of our Lord on this solemn occasion, I would like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5, and verses 8 and 9. The epistle of Paul to the Romans chapter five and verses eight and nine. Struggling a little bit here with my throat, so I'm hoping and praying that uh, my voice holds out here for me. But if I don't project and articulate as I normally would, please do pardon uh, the uh, weakness here that I'm dealing with. Romans chapter five and verses eight and nine, The Apostle Paul writes in the inspired word of God, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Well, this passage captures the heart and essence of the Christian faith. Paul tells us that the death of Christ for us is a demonstration, not just a demonstration, but the demonstration of God's love for the objects of his saving delight. These verses teach it teach, teach us, as some have pointed out, that God's love is essential to his nature. God's love is Trinitarian in its form, it's active in its display, and it's free in its exercise. God's love is a thoroughly gracious love. It's measureless, boundless, infinite, and free. The love of God is his eternal immutable, holy affection whereby he is determined to bring its special objects into intimate and eternal fellowship with himself. And as God's love is essential to his nature, it is as eternal and unchanging as God himself is. Thus God's love for his elect, it's not Like our fickle, changeable creature love, God's love for his elect is not some warm, fuzzy, fluctuating emotion to be revoked by the mood swings of an unpredictable deity whenever we misstep or mess up. His love rather is portrayed in scripture as one with his immutable, eternal will. It's associated with his determinate foreknowledge, which was exercised in choosing us, if we are in Christ, and making us the objects of his affection and grace, the Apostle Paul says, 2 Timothy 1.9, before time began. He loved you, believer, before time began. The question has been raised as to who killed Jesus The Messiah, who is responsible for his death, at whose feet should we lay the blame for the death of our Lord? Why exactly was it necessary for him to go to the cross and to die? When speaking of secondary causes, of course, the blame is to be laid at the feet of those who murdered him, not to mention at our feet. Because he died on account of our sin. If we had not sinned, he would not have died. But the primary cause of the sending of the Son, of the orchestration of the great plan of salvation, which climaxes in the death of the God-man on the cross, the primary cause was God. Isaiah 53.10 says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Hebrew word there means to press or to crush. It pleased the father to crush the son. Why did it please him? It's not because God takes delight in punishing his dearly beloved, only begotten son. God's not sadistic. It's the impetus behind This, the the impetus behind the pleasure of God in crushing his son is God's great love for his bride. His great love. 1 John 4, 9 says, And this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. The Father sent the Son to die for us because he loved us. And the Son willingly suffered the agony of the cross because he loved us. This is the love of the triune God on display, coming through the words of the Apostle Paul in our text. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died For us, the love of the Father and the love of the Son coming to fruition in the sacrifice of the cross, all according to the eternal plan of God. Peter was getting at this ultimate divine purpose when he said in Acts 2.23 that Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, He tells them, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And so men were guilty for crucifying him, for putting him to death, but he was only delivered according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was preordained. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, speaking of our redemption, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter added, he was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. For you, dear believers. So we will fail to grasp the significance of the death of Christ on the cross if we fail to trace its origin into the corridors of eternity, right into the bosom of the Father's heart of love. Octavius Winslow said, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father out of love. And so Paul writes God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is nothing in us or about us that would commend us to God, nothing that would constrain or demand or necessarily elicit his love toward us. It's while we were still sinners that he did this, Paul says. God didn't love us on account of our supposed intrinsic merit or loveliness. To the contrary, God loved us even as he contemplated us in the state of our sin and depravity and fallenness and vileness while we were still sinners. That's when the love of God was displayed on our behalf. That's when the love of God broke through. And this means that the love of God is free. It's of his own will. It's unmerited, undeserved, lavishly bestowed by grace, an extraordinary display of grace. The lavishness of the gift, which is Christ, God's son, and the unworthiness of its object, sinners like us, The lavishness of the gift and the unworthiness of its object accentuate the magnitude and glory of God's redeeming love toward us in the cross of Christ. That's the gist of verse 8. Then down in verse 9, the apostle adds, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, of course, the apostle is employing a logical argument here. And the argument is from the greater to the lesser, a much common form of rabbinic argument. The logic goes like this. If God so loved us that he sent Christ to die for us and purchase our salvation when we deserved all to the contrary, then how much more will we be saved from God's wrath now that we have been justified by the blood of his Son. Paul is highlighting here the everlasting security of our salvation in Christ. Our salvation is guaranteed by divine love. It's secured by divine blood, even, if you will. It's a salvation that is altogether efficacious to rescue us completely and forever from the penal consequences of sin. Hence, we shall be saved from wrath through Christ. Paul can speak of our present possession of salvation and posit by it an absolute certainty of our eternal salvation and eternal security of future salvation from God's wrath due to the all-sufficiency of the blood which now justifies us and its efficaciousness in being applied to us, whereby it really and fully and permanently extirpates all the guilt of sin. So we shall be saved from wrath. Without question, without any doubt, we shall be saved from wrath through Christ. And when I think about this, I find it striking that Paul reveals a logic, a theology of the cross that sadly is no longer very popular today. Nowadays we tend to think of the cross as an act of love but we tend to ignore its correlation with the wrath of God. We talk of a God who blesses but what about a God who also curses? We talk of a God who makes alive but what about a God who also kills? Deuteronomy 32:39 says this. This is the Lord speaking. Now see that I even I am he and there is no God besides me, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any other who can deliver from my hand. I think Christ very much experienced the reality of that declaration on the cross. I wound, I kill, none can deliver from my hand. But do we have a place for passages like this in our understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ? Is our view of the character of the Godhead in keeping with the full biblical testimony, or is our view a skewed caricature that distorts the attributes of God out of proportion? To conceive of the cross as all love and no wrath, is not only to misconstrue it, but it also denigrates the sublimity of the love that is revealed through the ferocity of the wrath. You can't begin to appreciate the love, its depth, its height, its breadth, its magnitude. You can't begin to appreciate the love unless you first face the weight of what the scriptures teach about the wrath. Because the love triumphs through the wrath. And the wrath itself is expended and extinguished precisely because of the love of God. Notice what Paul's telling us in verses 8 and 9. The blood of Christ justifies us such that we shall be saved from God's eternal wrath. Here, the apostle is exposing the essence of the theology of the atonement we have a sin problem and that sin problem also incurs a very real and very terrifying wrath problem sin problem leads to wrath problem and the cross of jesus christ is the divinely provided solution to that problem in its fullness, and it's a thoroughly adequate solution based on a perfect justification made by the infinitely meritorious blood whereby we are justified. But what precisely is this wrath from which we shall be saved? I've read my share of books and articles on the atonement over the years, and if you dig into the scholarly literature, On this topic, it won't take long until you come across the view that God's wrath is not really his personal wrath against personal sinners. Many, many people are saying that nowadays. A major proponent of this view was C.H. Dodd. He was professor of divinity at Cambridge for 14 years, wrote many books and commentaries, including a commentary on Romans And Dodd said that the phrase, the wrath of God, in Romans, is archaic. It's outdated. It's no longer applicable, he argues. He says it belongs only in the Old Testament, and that Jesus came to set the record straight and to explain that, well, that's really a misconception that God really isn't wrathful after all. God is love, and God is only love. And so now that Jesus came, Dodd says, God's love and mercy become all-embracing, but not as not a salvific love, otherwise it would leave, leave, lead us to universalism. Well, many have entertained this notion when Scripture speaks of God's wrath. They hold that it's merely a metaphor referring to the consequences we face in this life for the bad choices that we make. For example, as Paul said, you reap what you sow. But they view it in a naturalistic, temporal sense. You reap what you sow in this life. To give an example, if you sin by being habitually lazy, then you'll reap the so-called metaphorical wrath of God, by having to deal with poverty. They say that God doesn't actually punish sinners. Rather, he lets them to choose sin against him and then to experience whatever natural consequences come about because of that sin. They say God is only love, all love, benevolent, they claim, and only has the will to save, but never has the will to damn. Modern evangelicalism has been affected by these views. Instead of portraying the gospel as God's solution to the sin problem and the wrath problem, they portray the cross as if the point of the gospel were to rescue us from temporary misery in this life. You have emptiness in your heart. Well, come to Jesus and he will fill that God-shaped hole in your heart. He'll give you peace and fulfillment. Or you are depressed and you're sad all all the time, but if you accept Christ, then he will fill you with his joy and uh, you'll have lasting contentment. Come, Come to Christ, they say, as a kind of crutch, as a kind of way to cope with life and get through life, as a kind of way to improve upon our quality of living now. And whatever degree of truth, large degree, small degree, no degree, whatever degree of truth might be in those statements, they get misconstrued. As someone once said, a half-truth presented as a whole truth is an untruth. The biggest problem is that these portrayals of the gospel are man-centered, all revolving around the felt needs and happiness of people. Biblically speaking, the biggest problem of all is not that we get sad and lonely sometimes. Our problem is that we have sinned against a holy God and have incurred his wrath and his curse. The God of love is also the God of wrath. Sin and the curse began with the fall of our first parents in Genesis chapter 3. Cursed you are, the Lord said to Adam, from dust you are and to dust you shall return. Thus declaring the death sentence capital punishment over every sin. The curse is elaborated in Deuteronomy 28 for everyone who does not do all the things contained in the books of the law to observe them. Nahum 1-2 says, God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. That's the biblical God. It may not be the modern American God that is portrayed after the fall of For instance, the tragic collapse of the Twin Towers and everybody put that bumper sticker on their car that says, God bless America. God blesses, but God also curses. And God blesses those who repent and turn to Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. But God is everywhere spoken of in the scriptures as a God not only of love, but also of wrath. Going into the New Testament, Jesus spoke frequently about God's wrath in hell. For instance, Mark chapter 9, 34 to 35. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus preached eternal hell, eternal wrath of God. God's character remains the same from both the Old to the New Testament. But what is God's wrath? We've defined his love. What is his wrath? We can define God's wrath as his eternal settled opposition to all that contradicts his righteousness. And holiness. One theologian, John Murray, defines it as the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. As Habakkuk 113 puts it, God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. The thrice holy God cannot court the presence of sin. And the severity of God's wrath against sin is owing to the enormity and monstrosity of what sin is in itself. Sin is not a minor blemish. It's not an innocent little mistake or peccadillo. It's an offense of infinite gravity because it's committed against an infinitely glorious deity. And the proportion of, of the demerit of the sin is directly related to the magnitude of the dignity and the glory of the being against whom it is committed. Therefore, sin is a crime of infinite offense to a God of infinite glory meriting nothing less than his almighty and infinite wrath. Modern man kicks and balks against the idea of God's wrath. But that's because we have a very superficial and deficient view of sin. All of us do. All of us do. Because we're still swimming in it. J. Gresham Machen said, The modern rejection of God's wrath, in fact, proceeds from a light view of sin, which is totally at variance with the teaching of the whole New Testament and of Jesus himself. See, modern man diminishes the reality and ferocity of God's wrath because modern man diminishes the reality of what sin is, of what transgression is, of how God views it. And he diminishes sin because he diminishes God's holiness. Ultimately, it boils down to a low view of God. A low view of God leads to a low view of sin. A low view of sin leads to a low superficial superficial view of what Christ did for us at Calvary's cross. God's wrath seems unreasonable to those who don't think they deserve it. But when we begin to understand who God is and what our sin is in his sight, then we begin to understand that God's wrath is not only reasonable, but it's necessary. It's necessary because nothing short of God's wrath can satisfy justice when the standard of his perfect law has been violated. In Romans 1.18, very famous text, most of you know it. Paul said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness. Unrighteousness, our unrighteousness, our violation of God's justice. Any and everything that we have done, whether in ourselves or federally comprehended, and Adam as our head and representative. Every single sin as an act of unrighteousness is a violation of the law of God and it's a violation of the holy nature of God. And so, our unrighteousness is a violation of God's justice, necessitates and provokes the manifestation of God's wrath against us. And according to the argument of the book of Romans, This wrath will be fully revealed, chapter 2, verse 5, on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. And so God's wrath has both a present manifestation, 118, and future consummation, chapter 2 and verse 5. It's a fearful calamity that will come upon every fallen son and daughter of Adam unless they, we, are saved from it. But how can we be saved from it? How can we be saved from God's wrath? Well, Romans 5.9 clearly says, Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The blood of Christ justifies us in order to save us from the coming wrath. Christ is the solution to the sin problem and to the wrath problem. That's why 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Christ is the solution. But how does Christ's blood accomplish our salvation from wrath? How? How? Well, the answer to that, of course, is found in Romans 3.25, a passage that has been famously called the Acropolis of the Christian faith. You can look at it with me in your Bible, Romans 3.25. I like to call this text the Holy of Holies of inscripturated revelation because it takes us beyond the veil of the heavenly temple. To see what transpired in the presence of God when Christ died. Paul says in this verse that God set forth Christ Jesus. Which means he he placed him there. He exhibited him. He demonstrated him. Parallel idea to chapter 5 and verse 9. God demonstrates his love for us. God demonstrated that when he put his son on the cross. Set forth. How? As a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation. Hilasterion in the Greek. Very important word. Very foundational word. Very much central to Paul's understanding of the cross of Christ. It's a word that basically means appeasement or satisfaction. In scripture it refers to the appeasement of God's wrath by means of the satisfaction of his justice. The hilasterion, the propitiatory thing, according to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was none other than the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, to which the high priest would draw near once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, And he would sprinkle the blood of expiation seven times on that mercy seat. Underneath the mercy seat contained in the chest of the ark were the two tablets of the ten words. God's God's commandments which summarize our comprehensive duty to God. That's the law that we violated. The blood would be sprinkled over the mercy seat covering the law so that the law would not cry out for vengeance to be vindicated and our punishment, but so that law would be satisfied by the sacrifice of blood and the fire of the wrath would be appeased. God the Father put forth his Son as a sacrifice that placates the wrath of Almighty God. And Christ did this for the sinner, In the place and stead of the sinner. The son of God in his incarnation was constituted the mediator and legal representative of his people. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, he's the mediator. By going to the cross, Christ assumed the place of the sinner as his substitute and suffered the unmitigated punishment that the sinner deserved. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, to be treated just as if he were us. His death was a penal satisfaction. It was penal, and that it had to do with the punishment incurred due to our legal guilt against the law of God, as Christ bore that punishment in his own flesh on the cross. And it was a satisfaction as well, and that it perfectly met the demands of divine justice and supplied the all sufficient provision which perfectly satisfied all the requirements of God's justice forever. But of what did the penalty which he bore consist? What was this penalty? If he took our punishment, what was that punishment? Was it the mocking and scorning of the the Jews and the Greeks, the Romans and the religious leaders? Was it the nails that pierced his hands? Was it the suffering of hanging on the cross? All that was a part of it, but not the worst part. Because the penalty that he bore was nothing less than the penalty which we merit ourselves. Which we ought to bear ourselves. It was the fullness of the holy fury and just wrath of God against the sin of his elect people. It couldn't have been anything less. If Christ would have suffered anything less than that, then we would not have a true satisfaction made on our behalf. The Lord prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that prayer? He cried out, Father. If it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Take this cup from me. What was in the cup? wasn't just the sufferings of martyrdom. The cup was full of the holy hatred, the fury and wrath of God against sinners. Numerous texts bring out the symbolic meaning of the cup as a word picture of divine wrath. Psalm 11, 5 and 6 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion, listen to this, of their cup. It's a cup of wrath. Psalm 75.8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, and it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its drag shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Jeremiah 25.25, 25, Thus says the Lord, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Revelation 14.10 says, Whoever worships the beast and his image, himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which has poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The cup that Jesus begged to be removed from him was filled with fire, the fire of divine wrath. The righteous one took the legal place of the unrighteous and he suffered the vengeance of God, the unmitigated fullness of divine retribution against sinners. He drank the cup of fire and brimstone down to the dregs when he was crushed on that cursed tree. And at the cross, our beloved Savior was baptized with the fire. Of the hell that we deserved. But what was due to us for for an eternity. You see. Was deposited into his bosom. In a moment as he hung on on that cross. As a spectacle to men and to angels. Agonizing and writhing. And that's what made him sweat great drops of blood. When he thought about it. It was the terror and dread of having to face the wrath of almighty God. How many martyrs have suffered and died with boldness, with joy. And yet Christ is sweating blood, agonizing, as he just thinks about the suffering he'll go through. He wasn't afraid of the Romans. He wasn't afraid of the Jews. He could say with David in the psalm, My trust is in the Lord. I will not fear what man shall do to me. He didn't fear man, but he feared God. And that's the fear that made him tremble. That's the fear that made him sweat drops of blood. And because he faced that wrath, brethren, we shall be saved from wrath, as our text says. We deserve the curse of the law, but Christ became a curse in order to give us the fullness of divine blessing. We were separated from God, but he was forsaken on that cross so that we could be reconciled. We were under the wrath of God, but he bore it in full in order to place us into eternal favor. And so because of Christ, we go from curse to blessing, from condemnation to justification, from alienation to reconciliation, and from wrath to divine favor. It's an all-adequate solution to the sin and wrath problem. But it's not that God somehow hated us. And then Christ came as a kind of afterthought to intervene because he loved us and he wanted to change the mind of the Father so that the Father too would love us. That's not what it was. He didn't come to change the Father's mind. The Father and the Son are one in their love for sinners. It was the plan of God from the beginning to redeem us in love by fulfilling his wrath and his justice. And so... Here's how the measure of his wrath against sin at Calvary correlates with the magnitude of his love demonstrated there. The Father willingly sent the Son to the cross. And the Son willingly endured the wrath of the Father as he bled on that tree. The love of God is shown in the willingness of the Son to endure infinite wrath. For his elect on that cross. And when he went to the cross and bled for your sake. When he endured the waves and billows of God's wrath rushing over him like a tumultuous sea. What held him to that cross was pure, eternal, ineffable, redeeming love for you. The measure of his love for you is seen in the magnitude of the wrath that he willingly suffered for your sake. And there was nothing the Son feared more than the wrath of the Father. And yes, fear is a human emotion. And our Lord Jesus Christ, as a real person in our real and fallen world, experienced fear at times on earth. But never sinful fear, never a lack of faith. Christ in his humanity, his fear was the fear, the true fear of God. He was always, at every moment of his life, the blessed man of Isaiah 66, who trembles at the word of God. And what he feared most was offending his father in any way. But he also feared facing the wrath of Almighty God, because he is one with the Godhead and he knows what almightiness entails, like no other person knows what it entails except those who are currently enduring it in hell he knows what the wrath of Almighty God is like. He uniquely knew it like nobody else. And yet he chose to endure it willingly because you as a believer were on his heart and on his mind. There is nothing in the universe that would be more terrible than to experience the wrath of God. But Christ suffered it, the most horrible and unspeakable thing for you. He did it all out of holy, divine love. Only infinite love, and this is my point, only infinite love would be willing to suffer infinite wrath of such infinite proportions like that. The love that he has for you, dear believer, is measured by the reality of the wrath that he willingly endured for your sake. Paul isn't the only one to associate the magnitude of God's love with the reality of his wrath. 1 John 4.10 puts it succinctly in one little verse when it says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, we see that it was his love that provided the wrath-bearing sacrifice and so he drank the cup of wrath so that we can drink the cup of thanksgiving and the cup of salvation and the cup of praise and so on this good Friday and throughout tomorrow brethren let's meditate on these truths our Lord was crucified he suffered the agony of hellish wrath for us he died for us but our sin has been atoned for our iniquity has been punished we have peace with God through the blood of the cross and now we can know and enjoy the great love that God has for us knowing that he gave his only begotten son so that we can commune with the father and the son and the holy spirit for all eternity amen let's pray oh sovereign lord Help us to believe and embrace Christ as our wrath-bearing sacrifice. Give us that full assurance of faith to know that because he drank that cup to the last drop, that not a drop of condemnation remains for us who are in Christ Jesus. Please bless us, protect us, carry us through to resurrection, mourning, where we may gather again and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, who was crucified. We pray that you would bless our meal downstairs as we eat and drink in celebration of you, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen.